Welcome to the Modern Mommy Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. If you are a working mom or about to be, this episode is for you. Today, we're gonna talk about how to approach work with style, sanity, and big success after baby. Wow, Lauren, so happy that you are here with us today. This is gonna be amazing. For those people who do not know who you are, can you tell listeners what you do, who you are, and what makes you so passionate about the work that you do? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Lauren Smith Brody. I wrote a book called The Fifth Trimester that has spawned a movement and a business where I go into companies and help them do a better job of retaining women for the long term by supporting new motherhood in the workplace. My background is that I was a magazine editor for 16 years. The last position I had in in that career moment. 16 years is a long moment, but you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Was at Glamour Magazine where I was the executive editor. When I was there, I had both of my two boys who are now eight and 11. We live in New York and I had a very hard time transitioning back to work in spite of having kind of all the stars aligned for what in America looks like a pretty privileged new, new working mom experience. I had had and still have an incredibly supportive spouse. I had parents who were retired and could fly to town on a moment's notice. I had mostly female colleagues working at a women's magazine, and we were super comfortable talking about things like bladder control and nipples because that was just germane to the uh-huh. work that we did. <laughs> and yet, still, it was incredibly hard. So I had my first son. I kind of stumbled through it, and I was at I was at an executive level at the point that I had him. So I had some some probably more freedom and privilege to be a little more bare about what was hard than perhaps more junior colleagues might have. Mm -hmm. And it's also just only the only way I've ever known how to be. I kind of, I'm an open book, literally I wrote a book and wear everything on my face. And Mm -hmm. so I just decided to be pretty transparent about what was hard. And much to my surprise, I found that it actually was kind of motivating to my colleagues who did not have kids yet. And who looked at me and said, I know we work with all women, but I haven't seen anybody be really honest about how they make it work and how hard it is and that they still want to do it and that they need to do it. And that's what you're doing. And thank you, because now I know I can do it too one day. And that was really my eureka moment. I stayed in that career for another you know, several years, another kid, and then finally decided to look beyond just my own experience and do some research. And I did a big survey and interviewed more than 800 working moms about their experience coming back to work after baby in as many different fields and approaches to motherhood and definitions of ambition as I could come up with and put that all together in this book, which has now been out in the world for a couple of years and has fostered, um, it was really the launch, that's like the world's biggest business card. And it's it's really launched this this corporate business, which has become a sustainable career for me. And I'm so, so delighted that I get to do this work supporting all new parents as they come back to work and showing them that it is ultimately sustainable if they can 
ask for and get the support that we all deserve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting. I think when you do this type of work, when I do my work, like a, it's cathartic to write it all down and to like talk to other people for yourself to be like, Oh yes, this is valid. And then also I just see this, the honesty that when, that you brought to the book that I try to bring to, to my website, like people are so grateful just to have imperfect heroes who try their best, you know, we are are believable if nothing else. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, like I think people are done with this like stone cold, like I could do it. I am perfect at it. Like people want to see the brokenness because they can, can, can see that themselves and it can resonate with that. So that's so awesome. And how did you find all the women? Like, how'd you do the survey? Honestly, it was, it was like too easy and it probably wouldn't be as easy if I did it again right now, but I made a survey and it was really just out of this feeling of I'm one person. I can't fill 300 pages of a book with my own experience. And if I did, that would be boring and Mm -hmm. not helpful to enough people. So I created the survey. I spent really days and days writing it, drawing on my experience from women's magazines. I worked in a teen magazine before I worked at Glamour. So I was good at quizzes and uh, was able to see what data was out there and existed about the return to work. And it wasn't much. So I was able to kind of craft it and figure out what's missing and what would be really helpful to see, you know, with actual numbers next to it in terms of what we have in common with one another and what we don't you know, whether we are single moms, adoptive moms, you know, hourly wage worker moms, you know, moms who are highly educated, you know, and just, it, it just was, it was really cool. Anyway, I put it on Facebook, you know, like, I'm not sure that that's exactly the way I would do it right now if I were to do it again, but this was five years ago. Sure. And it very quickly got picked up by like all the mommy groups. And what was cool was the program that I used was called Qualtrics. It wasn't SurveyMonkey, which I now use for other things, but it was just kind of more like data nerdy and not as like a pretty an interface. But I could see that I had hit all 50 states. And and I thought, oh, wow, this is not just going to be a, you know, New York centric experience. Like I'm actually going to get data from women all over. And it was so I sat with the data for three days and just like, Mm -hmm. I maxed out at about, um, well, you're a doctor, so you did better than this, but at about algebra two was like really my (laughs) my peak, my peak math in eighth grade or whatever it was. Just don't ask me anything about organic chemistry. We'll be fine. uh, I can do math. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get anywhere close to there. But I really like did a lot of looking at, you know, common denominators and factors and was able to find real data that didn't exist anywhere else. And had, you know, that really exciting moment of realizing I had something here that people needed access to. And it probably took someone like you being in an executive role to care about it enough. You know what I mean? Like you had to have someone that's like at that echelon in order to actually have the motivation to do this work. Like if it was only men in this executive role or whatever, then they wouldn't be motivated to know what it's like for a woman to go back to work. Like it takes someone like yeah. you. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely, I, I, you know, when I was more junior, you know, I, I lived it. So yeah. I definitely was invested in solving it, but I don't think I felt like I had agency to until I was more further along in my career. Yeah. And so what words or themes kept on coming up again and again? You know, the biggest takeaway was that it won't sound surprising to you necessarily, but it did to me. And it really showed me that the women who I had stumbled upon really were representative of the average American working mom, 
was that when I looked at things like when they started sleeping through the night, Mm -hmm. which I defined as mom's full night of sleep, which I also defined as only seven hours straight, which is, you know, kind of on the cusp of being enough, but I didn't look at when baby slept through the night. That just totally depended on, you know, cultural norms. But, you know, when did you get a solid night's sleep? That was at like just past the seven month mark, which of course does not sync up at all with the 12 weeks of FMLA that, you know, not even everybody has access to. And then the other two, and there were, you know, there were dozens and dozens of points, but the other two things that really synced up with what we see in in the research um, that is far more scientific than mine is that I asked moms when they felt emotionally kind of back to normal-ish or back to a new normal and when they felt physically back to normal, which did not mean, and I said this, it does not mean back in your old genes. It means when do you feel comfortable in your your own skin again? And both of those data points were right around the six-month mark. And so I, I learned that from them. And then I went to go see what this, what the research showed. And as you probably know, it all points to six months of paid leave. That is the point at which mom's mental health is protected. Baby's physical health is protected. Dad's eventual bond or partner's eventual bond with the baby is protected. Mom's long-term career is, is protected if she has between six and nine months of paid leave. Like it just, all of that really synced up with what the research has shown us for, frankly, decades, this research has been going on. A lot of people don't, don't know this. FMLA, which is the Family and Medical Leave Act, which was passed in 1993, covers, it it allows you to take 12 weeks of unpaid leave and protects your jobs. You have to come back to an equivalent job. It's actually only because of all the sort of stipulations around it. It's it's only available to 56% of the American public. So that's that's one thing to note. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, you know, I don't know that many people who can afford to take a quarter of a year unpaid. But when it was first passed in 1993, it was actually one of the first things that Bill Clinton signed into law. But that was after nine years of negotiations. And initially, when it had first been proposed, it was meant to be 26 paid weeks. Which like, what is 26 paid weeks, if not six paid months of maternity leave, which is what we see, obviously, in other countries who do even better than that. And we know that the research shows us is what's needed. So now when I coach and go into these companies and speak to these groups of moms who all talk about feeling guilty and it's so hard, it's so hard, it's so hard. Well, that is not your fault that it's hard. It's only natural that it's hard. If you're going back at 12 weeks and you think that you're supposed that we have this sort of cultural norm around thinking 12 weeks is when you should be recovered from having had a baby and being ready to be back at your old pace, it's completely unrealistic. So I really, I do a lot of talking about that, that normalization of 12 weeks and how we need to shake it off. Yeah, absolutely. You talking about it as even like a crisis of expectation, which I think is absolutely right on. I see that with my families when they come in. I felt that myself. I mean, at 12 weeks is right when you're like, okay, fine. The baby's finally, I want to actually be with them. You know, before yes, that. Yes. <laughs> that was, that was, you must know the Harvey Karp book, mm-hmm. The Happiest Baby on the Block. So that book introduced me to the idea of the fourth trimester, which I hadn't heard of before I was in it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, this notion of to soothe a newborn baby, you recreate the feeling of the womb by shushing and swaddling and all these S verbs because that is, and it works because human babies, the idea goes, you know, are born three months earlier than, than other ma- mammals developmentally. So basically you're, you're giving birth to a fetus. And by the end of those three months, AKA 12 weeks of FMLA, you will have a real baby who will look you in the eye, give something back to you, laugh, maybe be starting to get on something of a sleep schedule, eating schedule, 
all those things that you thought you were going to have when you first had a baby. And the irony of that, reading it and hearing Dr. Karp, whom I totally admire, but who kept saying, just get to 12 weeks, mom. I was like, oh my God, really? <laughs> that's, right. that's when I'm going to be back at work. Yeah, yeah. that's when you're going to be back at work. I remember being back at work right at 12 weeks and calling in a prescription for a patient, which was not like a critical prescription. So, you know, this is not like a call the medical board thing, but it was like, yeah, it was like a eardrop or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was like at midnight I was on call and I was calling it in. And the next morning I go to work and my nurse at work goes, did you call in a prescription at 12 o'clock at night last night? And she <laughs> goes, yeah. She goes, because the pharmacist called and said that he could barely understand what you were saying. And then oh, you were like God. so sleep deprived. And she's like, and I told him she just came back from maternity leave. She's not herself yet. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. and you know, it wasn't a big deal for the patient. We corrected it. Yeah. 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 Clearly, I was not ready to go back to the workforce, especially at my kind of job. You know, right, right. No, no one is at an executive level for sure, but anyone who has any level of responsibility is not ready at 12 weeks to enter the workforce, especially fully leaning in to yeah. their work. Right. Well, and so this is this is really what has become a conundrum for me in the work that I do now is that you know so much of what I talk about and what the research shows us is that actually motherhood does make you better at your job. Right. Mm -hmm. Like mothers come back better able to pivot between tasks because they've had a you know drill sergeant of a baby who wasn't willing to wait for them to like go to the bathroom and get a cup of coffee. Like you know, you you have to pivot quickly. They are better at managing their time and their days. They're actually better managers of other people because they are more empathetic. Some people don't like to talk about because they think it's like kind of, you know, unfeminist to say that, you know, women are more emotionally in touch, but you know what? Screw that. If it, if it makes you a better manager, like I'm for embracing that idea of (laughs) feminism. Mm -hmm. But so it's really, it becomes tricky for me because as much as I need these businesses to understand that their employees are really not ready to be there at 12 weeks, I also want to prove to them that if they just give them either a little more time or if they can't afford to give them paid leave, which it should not be on private corporate America, it should be on our federal government to tell us all that we all need to pay a little bit into a fund to like, you know, perpetuate humanity yeah. and that that next generation will support our economy. So it shouldn't have to be on private America, but if they do support the return to work. So if you have employees who are back before that six month mark, which of course they probably are, that every little drop of energy and resources you invest in flexibility, in, you know, letting that mom, you know, say, I need to go pump right now, or I need to reschedule that meeting. So it's not at eight in the morning, but it's at nine 30 in the morning mm-hmm. that that all pays off in being able to retain these women and showing them the strength and having, you know, more women in their C-suites on their boards in leadership, that there's actual dollars and studies that show, that prove how effective it is and how profitable it is to have these women in leadership. But of course, the only way to get them into leadership is to make them not want to leave at this very, very vulnerable moment. Right. And to not make them feel guilty about they're not doing the work as fully as someone else who didn't take maternity leave. I mean, I, I loved when I've seen you do a few talks like at Google. I mean, I wasn't at Google, but I watched a video of you doing a talk at Google, you know, <laughs> what you're talking about. I didn't live in the Bay Area for a while, but you know, uh, like you have nothing to apologize for. For yeah. having leave, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hey mama, when I think about the times I have felt the most overwhelmed or discouraged as a mom, they all share one common theme. 
In all of them, I felt directionless or like I was headed in the wrong direction even. So as I dove into what could make it better for myself or for my family or just for life in general, I started thinking every day about how I was actually going to move toward where I wanted to be in six core areas. My dreams, spending time on what matters, making space for myself, taking care of my mental and physical health, parenting and partnership, and being really purposeful about understanding who my kids are, what their needs are, and how I can best parent them as individuals. And after a while, I realized I had something I could come back to when I felt rudderless, but also that I felt lost less often. So I started writing down for the Modern Mommy Doc community more about these six core areas. And that's how the Parenting with Intention journal came to be. Because as I shared what I learned about intentional parenting with other mamas in my clinic or online, it resonated with them. We designed the Parenting with Intention journal to be quarterly, so you could start fresh every three months and be able to look back on the year in chunks and see your progress. If you're feeling like you could use some more intention in your motherhood journey, you can check it out at modernmommydoc.com forward slash shop. You can make your own journal with a notebook or even lined paper. You don't have to buy anything to do this. Above all, I hope you'll take at least five minutes a day to stop, slow it down, and really get intentional about what your motherhood journey is all about. You heard a lot about mommy guilt when you conducted your interviews, right? Yes. So this was, I will say, you know, when you're an author, you're, you're really bootstrapping it. And it's also, it's a very solitary endeavor to write a book. And yet I got to interview all these women, which is incredible. And the one sort of resource that I gave myself along the way was that I, I hired a transcriptionist and she's awesome woman named Sarah who lives outside of Cleveland. She was a single mom at the time and she transcribed these interviews and she sent them to me. And as I was reading them word for word, all, oh, I didn't even say this. So I did the survey of the 732 women, but then I did longer, like hour long in-depth interviews with another hundred and also an additional array of experts and dads and partners. And so I needed all of that transcribed to be able to work with it. And I'm, you know, I I started my career in journalism, so I was not going to, you know, have to do it halfway. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I'm looking through these transcripts and the word that just popped up again and again and again and again was guilt. I don't think there was one single woman I interviewed who did not use the word guilt. But what I also noticed was that it meant very different things to different people. So there were some moms who said that they felt guilty for leaving their baby in the care of someone who they felt was not as loving or as capable as they would have been themselves. That was one kind of guilt. Sure. Then there were moms who said, I feel guilty because I freaking love being back at work. <laughs> I love having adult conversation. I love drinking my coffee when it's hot. And, and yet I feel guilty about that because I think that makes me like not a good mom. Mm-hmm. And so, and every, every version of guilt in between that you could think of. And what I realized is that they were using this word guilt as, as really just like a default throwaway term. And guilt, if you just define it, it implies wrongdoing. Like it, it means that there was some other better path you could have taken and you did wrong. And right, of course, if every single one of these mothers is feeling like to a degree in one way or another, she did something wrong. There's no other better, less guilty mom. So much like the eighth grade algebra I was doing before, I realized there's this common denominator that we all experience. If you scratch it out, and if you look at the numerator, you look at what the actual feeling is, you can treat for that. 
right? Like if it's, if you feel conflicted, if you feel underpaid, if you feel undervalued, if you feel like, you know, you really want to be home with your baby, like those are all legitimate feelings. If you feel really ambitious in this moment and that's surprising to you, don't feel guilty about it. Just work with that feeling. And, and it just struck me as so, as so sexist, you know, and really related back to the gender pay gap, which we know is, you know, 80% of it can be accounted for by the motherhood penalty, which is when women are paid less and less per child that they have and offered fewer and fewer opportunities. And, you know, it's just sort of this big whole mishmash of like, can we all just agree to not use the term mommy guilt anymore? Because nobody's doing anything wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like name the actual thing that you're feeling as opposed to this blanket statement of of guilt. And then you also talked about really broadcasting the things that are hard when you come back to work so that then we normalize like this is the experience of a mom and this is normal. And so that our bosses understand like this is what it is to pump. This is what it is to be a new mother, right? It It is actually more impressive for you to succeed and at the same time show that it was hard to succeed. If people see that it's hard and see you get through it anyway, you know, warts and all, that's actually a good thing and that that will create progress and change and we cannot expect, you know, there are a lot of progressive workplaces where people just feel still like they can't be themselves and you know, they want to do the right thing for their employees but they if they don't even know that you need to pump, how do they know that you need to pump? You know. Right. Yeah. So you know, there are some things that good employers should predict and, you know, but nobody can speculate or read your mind. You really have to be open about what you need. And you have to realize that it's not just for your own sake, but it's really in the service of everybody you work with who has a personal life, not even just for the moms or the women, like it's for the dads. It's for anybody who has an older child who has a disability. It's for anybody who has a parent that they're taking care of. You know, everybody has a personal life and everybody has something that matters to them that needs some consideration sometimes. Yeah. We're all humans. It turns out. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I want to give moms some really practical tools too, for if they're going back to work. So specifically about going back and taking kind of a slower approach, how can moms or moms to be start to address this kind of with their bosses about kind of a slower approach and a slower re-entry? What can make that more successful with their So family? I will say that any, any workplace that offers on-ramping of paying people their full salary for a part-time schedule, even if that part-time schedule is like 85%, it is the first thing I hear about when I go into businesses from these moms who are so grateful for it because it made such a difference to them. So, you know, if you can't necessarily negotiate to have more paid leave because that's just not going to be available to you, think about other ways that you can kind of steal back time for yourself in a way that, that like really pays off in terms of your mental health and your physical health and your ability to be the kind of mom that you want to be. If that means that, you know, you're, you want to be able to nurse twice in the morning, breastfeed twice in the morning before you go to work, but that would mean coming in an hour late, you know, perhaps what you negotiate as part of your leave is you take your leave for the 11 weeks instead of 12 weeks, if that's what it is. But for the entire next year, I haven't done the math on this in my head, like I said, Mm -hmm. algebra two, Max, Mm -hmm. you know, for the entire next year, you come in an hour later, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's going to make you feel like you had a win, negotiate for that. 
the other thing that makes just a really, um, a really big impact bigger than you might imagine is that when dads take paternity leave and I will roll partners in that as well, although most of the studies are really about dads specifically, it has an enormous impact on mom's ability to continue with her career. So for every, I think the statistic is for every month of paternity leave a dad takes, mom's lifetime earnings increase by 7%. Mm-hmm. That is not because of the money that she made during that month. That is mm-hmm. because, you know, all kinds of gender norms were disrupted in that time when dad was home and actually learned how to, you know, take care of this baby. Mom learned to trust dad to take care of the baby in spite of the fact that perhaps she had longer maternity leave than he had paternity leave. And and things get much more balanced so that when both parents get home at the end of a work day, and this is supposing like a, a you know, a traditional work day they both know how to do all the things and they're more likely to divide them up evenly. And they don't send a message back at their workplaces that, hey, mom's work at home is more valuable than dad's work at home. And dad's work in the office is, or at the workplace is more valuable than his work in the home. It's crazy how much making that decision of like tacking dad's leave on to the end of mom's just a month can really, really change you know, your entire trajectory. Yeah. And I think sets you up for more equitable partnering as you, as your kids get older too. I mean, absolutely. Even now I deal of course, like in my own professional life, but also just personally with like this expectation that I would be the one to take my kids to a doctor's office or to, right. just, you're like, what, what, what? like, but I yeah, work for, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. And I, I do need to be there and want to be there for some things that are really important for them and show up for them. But there are some things that it does not need to be that I'm the only person in the village that takes care of it. So I think when you do that in the beginning with the paternity leave, if you can, it just sets it up for everyone who knows you that you as you and your partner are working to try to be more equitable and have things be a bit more equal. Yeah. And the word, the word that I have really learned to use is equitable. I, you know, it's funny, like I kind of, I regret actually that the title of the partnership chapter in my book, and there, there are a lot of single moms in the book too, but it's something mm-hmm. like, you know, getting to 50, 50 ish, like that may not actually be the right equation for your family. It's really about equity. It's about feeling like, you know, the work that you do outside the home is valued and the work that you do inside the home is valued and has like numeric value to it. And it doesn't always make sense to split every duty, you know, evenly. It it might make more sense for you to like offload the thing that you absolutely despise doing or are terrible at to your partner entirely or to say, you know, actually... I love bathing the baby. And so I'm going to change my day around so that we always do the bath in the morning. I know, which is crazy. Like nobody bathes their baby in the morning, but maybe you do that because that's the only time you're going to be able to do it and you and you can own it and it's yours. And knowing that, you know, when you've decided to take on this baby duty, don't think of it as, oh my gosh, I have so many tasks, but you know, no, actually like this is, this is one I prioritize because when I had a fantasy of what it was going to be like to be a mom, this was a big part of it. Yeah, this was the thing I cared about. If if people are looking for specific resources in this area, the book "How Not to Hate Your Husband After After Kids." Yes, I'm, I'm friendly with Jancy Den, the author. She's amazing, and our books came out at the same time, so we had like so many intersecting worlds at that moment. Yeah, I, I mean, I just felt like it was so um, fair, like to moms and to dads, and like like you're saying, talked so much more about being equitable as opposed to being a hundred percent equal or like keeping tallies or that type of thing. 
which yeah. was so much more helpful. One area, and I know that you even hesitated to add this into the book, but I do think it's important is you devote some time to how moms can feel better about the way they present themselves physically yes, to yes. the world. <laughs> yes, yes. It's funny. I mean, anytime I do an interview and somebody's like, what's your number one tip? I'm like, oh my God, like, I really have to share the closet tip, but I don't want to be the lady who shared the closet tip. But... <laughs> It's, and you can, you can see it. I mean, my mother, when she read the manuscript for the book was like, oh my God, you regret so much. But like, <laughs> I just, I came out of Glamour Magazine and, you know, and I made a conscious choice to go do something that felt different to me and fulfilling in a different way. However, I was very steeped in the fact that we derive a lot of our feeling about ourselves from how we look and how we project ourselves in the world. And you better believe that our colleagues take that in and respond accordingly. And so I did what I did for everything in the book that I was nervous about not being an expert enough in, which is that I looked at the research. I went into PubMed and I dug and dug. And sure enough, there's all these studies that basically show that like, if you feel good about your hair, you're going to do better in your job that day. I mean, it's ridiculous, but there they are. So anyway, so I, the closet tip is, you know, you are going to go back to work probably before the clothes that you wore previously in your job fit properly again. And frankly, if you have been trying to get pregnant and then pregnant and then postpartum for a while, they may not even be stylish anymore. So do not be tortured every single morning by your closet. Go in to, you know, open the door of your closet and make a tiny section of exactly whatever number of things. It might be five pieces of clothing that A, fit you and B, are appropriate for work. And if in that collection of that mini closet within your closet, you see that you do not own any pants, then go buy a pair of pants. (laughs) Yes. I mean, freaking, please go buy pants. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) And so, and so that, and they don't, they can be, I bought like $29 pants at that point in my life. It was fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, don't let your closet dictate the way you're going to feel about yourself all day long. Just shop from that one little tiny closet within your closet and add to it as the months go on and the seasons change and your body turns into the body it's going to be you know, and the hair thing, like do do whatever you can do to get yourself hair that, that, you know, does what you want it to do. That doesn't need washing quite as often the makeup stuff. So women had, you know, they reported to me that they spent more time getting ready in the morning than they had previously, because a lot of that time was spent preparing everything they needed to take to work to pump or to get things ready to go to daycare or whatever, but that they had much less time to spend on themselves. And the average number of minutes that a mom spent with her baby, just like holding and enjoying the baby in the morning was six, six minutes. Mm -hmm. That's actually not, I mean, I'm thinking back on my own experience. Like I'm not even sure that I, that I held my sons and cooed to them that much in the morning. I tried to build that into the changing of the diaper. Yeah. I don't think I did. (laughs) I was like, here, Nanny. I say that number when I give talks and people start weeping. And I'm like, well, that is actually the reality of getting out of the house in the morning. So if you're only going to have six minutes with your baby, you better believe that like, you're not going to be spending 15 minutes doing your makeup. So you need a one minute makeup routine. You need things that multitask. You need to take care of your skin because if you take care of your skin, you need less makeup than you would otherwise. Like these, these very, so I went and interviewed, you know, like a top dermatologist who treats celebrities who have been pregnant. You know, so they're all in there too, along with the, along with the public policy people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, Toy Sweeney. I don't know if you know her. She's a she's on no. QVC for a long time. She's a fashion expert, and she helps do like styling for brands. So she helps people to kind of like match their their look with their brand. Yeah. And okay. her big thing. Yeah, she's amazing. And her big thing that she says is, you have to dress the way you want to be addressed. And yeah. 
I mean, I think that is just the reality of life. Like man, woman, child, like if you are dressed like you came out of a box car, then you will be addressed like you came out of a box car. Yes. And it, and it shouldn't have to be, you know, like there is something that's called that I've learned about since writing the book, it's called the makeup tax. That is something that I think Michelle Obama has talked about. And I know Sally Krawcheck has talked about, which is, you know, the amount of time and money and money as time that we spend making ourselves work appropriate that men don't have to put in. And it's not fair, but it is true. Right. It's, it's reality, even if it's not yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. How about this idea of finding satisfaction in your work once you return? Because I think that a lot of moms, maybe before they were working, they were like, I mean, before they had their baby, they're totally fine with like, I'm a coder. It's fine. It's cool. You know, I code. And then they go back to work. And some moms are like, I'm so jazzed to be getting back to this thing that was ultimately fulfilling for me. But if it maybe wasn't fulfilling before they left for maternity leave, it's harder. So can you talk about that, about how to find satisfaction after you return? Oh, sure. This was also a really, really common desire is that, that, you know, everybody wanted to feel like their work had more meaning. They were choosing or not choosing, but needing to, to be at work. And they were, you know, not with their babies at the same time. And so they wanted the work that they were doing to have meaning beyond just their salaries. And most of us are underpaid, particularly mm-hmm. moms. So they sought new meaning in their work. And what was really incredibly reassuring to me actually was, and sort of unexpected, was that it wasn't really the, the women who had necessarily the highest ranking jobs and who seemed, you know, on resume paper to be the most ambitious, who, who felt that satisfaction. There were a lot of people who found satisfaction. There was a waitress I interviewed who found satisfaction in sharing the load with her coworkers when they, you know, when she was very pregnant and couldn't, you know, have as many tables at a time she and her colleagues decided that they would pull their tips because there was always somebody who had a need. And she found satisfaction in that. The eureka moment for this book was when a, you know, a colleague of mine walked into my office. I was back from leave. I had, you know, huge circles under my eyes and breast pump on my desk. Like, you know, mm-hmm. just, I was, I was a mess. And she and I were working through some, some bit of copy on a page that needed to be sent off to the printer And she stopped and she said, I just want to say thank you for being so open and honest about all this stuff that's hard about motherhood. And I thought, and I had had, like, I was good at my job, but I had also kind of maxed out on what I wanted to learn in this role. And at that moment, I I will say like at the moment I thought, oh God, you know, I'm, I was a little bit young for my role. And I thought, have I been, have I been unprofessional? Have I said one too many times that I didn't sleep last night? And instead, right. in, in my awkward pause, she then went on to say, because you've shown me I can do it too. Thank you. And that was, I described that moment earlier in our conversation, but the reason that was a light bulb for me was because I realized, oh, I'm going to derive satisfaction from my job in mentoring, in you know how I set an example for my colleagues, in what limits I push in terms of our benefits and our workplace culture for parents, whole like whole new world opened to me in terms of ways that I could grow and find satisfaction. And I like that you asked about satisfaction because I actually very purposefully in the book found myself not wanting to write about being happy. You know, there's this notion of the happy mom that. I'm, I'm happy most days because I'm an optimistic person. That's just the way I'm built. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that's helpful to strive for happy. I think it's more like satisfied with compromises and knowing that that's what you've chosen and you had the agency to make those choices. 
Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, I think so. And it goes along with this whole idea that you have in the book of like lean in or just stumble forward. Like it's okay. You don't have to fake it till you make it a hundred percent. It's okay yes. to tell people what's going on. Now, if someone says like, how's your day going? You don't have to lay out the entire thing, you know, but like, <laughs> no. but no. you can be vulnerable with people, especially who are under you, who are looking up to you, who are trying to do the same thing that you're doing. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yes. And it's that same idea. It's that like, if you, if, if you show that something is hard and yet you're still getting through it in a productive and good way, like good for you. you know, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So how can moms join you on your journey for the fifth trimester movement? Where can they find you? Because I know there's going to be a lot of moms who are going to want to advocate for other moms they know or find oh, out thanks. more about it. Yeah. That's for great. Sure. I am mostly on Instagram at the fifth trimester, all spelled out. I totally cheat and I do the thing where it also posts to Twitter and Facebook. So most of what's (laughs) on Twitter Twitter and Facebook, on Twitter, I'm Lauren S. Brody and I do post some more academic stuff there too. I'm also a journalist. I write for the New York Times, for Harper's Bazaar, for Glamour, for a lot of places. So, you know, if you, if you see a story that I've written and you want to share it, that would be awesome. My website, which is thefifthtrimester.com, again, all spelled out, has a lot of information about my business offerings. I think of Instagram almost as my pro bono work because I do a lot of Q&A answering for you know, people who write in with um, you know, ask me anything questions that I'll answer for everybody to see and share and having my highlights to refer back to if you need specific advice. I've answered more than 100 questions. So probably your question is in there someplace. Mm-hmm. And then the corporate work that I do supports everything else. So if you feel like your business would benefit from having me either coach women individually as they come back, come in and do a speaking engagement, that's my most popular offering, or consult on how to make policies more fair and sustainable, both for the employees and for the employers, drop me a line. I'm lauren at thefifthtrimester.com. I love it. When I think about my girls, girls or boys and their kids, I have this dream of them having a better experience in the workplace when they come back, not having to fight quite so hard to have it just be normal to be moms or dads when they're there. And it is because of people like you that that is going to happen. So thank you so much for being here. And for listeners, make sure you check out the show notes. I'll put all the information for Laura Smith Brody there and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you, Whitney. I really appreciate it. Hey, 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 if you loved this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast so you're automatically notified every time we have powerful information, inspiration, and amazing guests to share with you. We would also be so honored if you shared the Modern Mommy Doc podcast with your friends by snapping a screenshot of this episode and posting it with hashtag Modern Mommy Doc so we can spread the word and help more mamas win at parenting without losing themselves. Thanks for being part of our community.